0: And so it's so important that Black educators lend their voices and share their expertise about the things that make our children successful academically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually.
1: Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter?
0: Good evening. I am Brian Keith Harris II. I am the founder and director of Cultivating Young Kings, which is an organization that provides uh, educational training for teachers, mentors, school districts, and community activists who do work with black and brown boys. I am also the artistic director of Sons of Freedom Dance Institute and the director of outplacement and graduate support in Washington, D.C. One of the things that I think of immediately when i think of why it is that black educators matter i think about all of the many years and decades that our people black people's voices were silenced and black educators did not have an opportunity to weigh in in conversations about best practices when educating our children and so it's so important that black educators lend their voices and share their expertise about the things that make our children successful academically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. And so black educators matter because our children need to hear from, our children need to see, and our children need to be nurtured by the people that look like them, and the people that have a shared experience as them. Mm.
1: All right, Mr. Harris, now where are you from? <laughs>
0: Uh, i'm originally from pittsburgh pennsylvania by way of the dmv area
1: okay so you yep. are still in dc right now but you are from pennsylvania where did you go to school
0: undergrad and you know
1: grad school oh or no, like, no no I no sh- kindergarten
0: ah, <laughs> i'm here for that that's fine um I went to kindergarten uh, at a school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that's called Linden Elementary School. Okay. The thing that I think is so, so cool about Linden or was so cool about Linden is that Linden was a German emergent school. Have you ever heard of that?
1: Before? No. So what does that mean?
0: Exactly. And so their mission and goal was to make sure that all of the children that went to the school, kindergarten through fifth grade, had a rigorous training and instruction in learning German, And so when I tell people that I learned German for the first six years of my life, people are always like, what? But it's so true. Such a Such a true statement. And so I went to Linden Elementary School. From Linden Elementary School, I went to Frick Middle School. And Frick Middle School is directly across the street. It still is today from the University of Pittsburgh left Frick Middle School, and then I went to a high school in Pittsburgh called Shinley High School. And in the 10th grade, my family relocated to the DMV area. And uh, I finished high school at McLean High School in McLean, Virginia. Then went to college, went to Hampton University, the real HU. I know other people will probably say otherwise, and that is fine. But I went to Hampton University. From Hampton University, I then went to the Sam Meduitt Proctor School of Theology, At Hampton, I got my undergraduate degree in print journalism. And then when I went to the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology, I got a master's degree in uh, divinity with an emphasis in Christian education. And I am currently a doctoral student at Wesley Theological Seminary, getting a doctorate in public engagement.
1: Come on, educator who is always chasing (laughs) education. Come on for it. That's it. That's it. Now, so at your... Middle school, K to 5, that's not middle, that's elementary. So K to 5, the German school, what was the demographics of the student body and of the teachers?
0: Mm -hmm. So the demographic of the student body was really mixed. This was in the mid to late 80s. Uh, Student body as well as faculty, as a matter of fact, my principal, who I'm still in contact with, Dr. Ernestine Reed, was a black woman who was the principal at Linden for many, many years. And so it was definitely a mixed environment, both student body and uh, faculty and staff.
1: How far did you live from that school? Like, was it a neighborhood school that just happened to be German or I guess, um, so I'm from Chicago, I have no idea what it was like out there, but how does a young black boy end up going to a school that is focused on German? In learning German. During that time,
0: there was this whole push of the magnet school programming. And so magnet schools in, in Pittsburgh worked such that your parents would literally petition for you to get into the school by way of standing outside in a line to register you for this magnet school program. And so I remember vividly, and I don't even know how I remember this, but I remember vividly my parents with their lawn chairs and blankets, like standing outside, making sure that they registered their black boy for this magnet program. We lived uh, not too far from the school and in the area that we lived in, it was a predominantly white area. The, The area that the school was in, which is in an area called Squirrel Hill, is a very upper-class, kind of white community of, of people who actually are educators and into the arts and those kinds of things. And so that's how I ended up at, 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 that, at
1: that school. Shout out to your parents for that commitment, for trying to make sure that you had access to this magnet program.
0: Absolutely. Shout out to them for that opportunity. And, and to all of the parents during that time who said, hey, like, We want to make sure that our child has the best access to quality education. And if that means that we have to sacrifice our, you know, selves by by sitting outside and doing it, then that's what we're going to do. So shout out to my parents um, and to all of those parents during that time.
1: Were there other black students there? Absolutely. Absolutely. As
0: a matter of fact, some of my close friends that I'm friends with, even today, I went to elementary school with, and as I stated before, that the principal of our school was Dr. Ernestine Reed, and she was a black woman, and you know she was she was awesome. I mean, I remember so vividly um, just seeing her walking down the hall with her, you know, suits, and just really being an example of leadership, but then also her being an example of black excellence and I remember that even though she worked with all of the students I remember that she took extra time and care to the students who looked like her which was me you know and others who 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 are black
1: students at that school. so from a German elementary school to an HBCU how did you make (laughs) how did you make that jump what led you to Hampton University yeah, so I think Daniel. The truth of the matter is that uh, we skipped a little bit because because it, it will kind of make a little bit more
0: sense. But I went to a mixed elementary school. I went to a mixed middle school. Um, I went to an all black high school for ninth and tenth grade, and then I went to a predominantly white high school to finish in McLean, Virginia. Then I ended up in Hampton. So 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 the journey kind of worked such that. My parents always made sure that I knew exactly who I was. My parents made sure that I knew the history that I was connected to so that I had cultural legacy. And my parents and my family, my church family and all of the other extracurricular activities and organizations that I was a part of reinforced and affirmed um, blackness. And so even though I was in the context where there were mixed students and then times when there were, you know, predominantly all white students, I had this overwhelming sense of who I was. And I knew that I wanted to go to Hampton when I was in the ninth grade. I just knew it. Um, I know you probably remember, but a different world, I tell people all the time, a different world is the reason why I went to Hampton. Before I I, I realized that A Different World was a sitcom and that Hillman was not a real college, I thought that Hillman was Hampton. And I said, listen, if this is what they're doing in college, sign me up. And um, I remember somebody saying, you know, that's Hampton University, right? That's all they needed to say. Because after I heard that, I was like completely sold.
1: So with your experience at Hampton University, especially after having all of those diverse experiences from kindergarten through high school and even moving to that area. How did you attending Hampton University help you understand who you were as a young Black man?
0: Yeah, I think that attending Hampton University gave me the freedom or the license to function and and live in black excellence. I think it was at Hampton that I really learned what black excellence means. Um, We had a dean of, the dean of women uh, at Hampton University, and I think she has retired, her name was Dr. Jewel B. Long. And uh, Dr. Long, I remember the first week during freshman week, she got on the microphone and she said, this is what a Hamptonian woman or man is, right? And and she like laid out all of these different things. And I think that from that that time, I really gained the freedom and the license to be excellent, the freedom and the license to you know know who I was, know my place in the world, and then and then quickly figure out how it is you know that I'm gonna navigate through the world being a black man. I do think, however, that my experience was not fortified until I got to the Samuel Proper Parker School of Theology, because I went to a seminary that is Black thought, Black theology, Black pride, African-centered theology, Black Jesus, you know, and so I think it was there that I was really able to, one, at Hampton, focus on the Black excellence, but, but in, at Virginia Union, focus on the Blackness.
1: Mm -hmm. You know what was your major in undergrad
0: so my major was print journalism, so I really wanted to be a News writer and then move into becoming a news reporter And that didn't work out quite the way that I thought it would but that that was what my undergrad degree was in
1: So how did you decide with all of these experiences? How did you decide that you wanted to become an educator? So the reality is that from the time I
0: was I was younger than Yale, I always was three things, always a preacher, an educator, a dancer. And even as I look at where I am today, all three things still strongly apply. So I think those beginnings of me of me teaching, I can remember literally telling my parents, like, sit down, I'm going to teach you this lesson. Or always telling people some kind of lesson that I felt like they didn't know. They probably did know. But, like, I was just so pressed to, like, tell people things that I would always be like, hey, mom and dad, did you know? Or, you know, so that kind of idea of always giving knowledge was always a part. I think when I went to seminary, it was when I realized that the experiences that I had, I really wanted to take what I had what I received in school, what I received from my family. And I wanted to make sure that I poured that into children. I think it was in grad school that I made the decision. I'm actually going to use all of this seminary training. I'm going to use all of this good journalism training and and communication training. And uh, I'm going to go into education and really just give back to children um, the things that my parents and community gave to me.
1: So as a preacher, educator, and dancer... Do you find that you have a shared sense of identity and connectedness with your black students? And if so, how (laughs) did you find it?
0: So, number one, we absolutely have a shared connectedness with our students. One, we have a shared connectedness with our students because they visibly look like us. So that in and of itself creates a level of commonality that is a very simplistic way of, of, of looking at it. I think secondly, there is absolutely a shared connectedness or identity through things simply like the arts. You know, the arts is an intrinsic part of our culture. And so one of the ways in which teacher and student uh, begin to merge with each other and begin to relate to each other oftentimes is through the lenses of the arts. And, And it's in our teaching that we use those things that are a part of our shared culture. Even some of our calls to attention in the classroom are things that were directly taken from songs that we know in our community or directly taken from things that we even pulled all the way from our African ancestors and heritage that is only unique to the people who know about the culture. And so the reality is that there's a shared connectedness between teachers and students that is so powerful that if we continue to focus on that, we can reshape our children's identity through history and culture and use our shared connectedness to continue to help our children be successful, but also continue to help them know exactly who they are. I think the way that I found that was simply through the arts. I think for me, and I know many others may have different ways, but I think one of the main ways that I found that shared connectedness was through the arts. And even when you know, the connectedness may not have been there because of the backgrounds that we have had or the socioeconomic status that we were we were in or we grew up in. I think one of the things that brought me and brings me and my children to the same place is that love for the arts. The arts is something that every person can gain access to no matter where you are, no matter where you live, no matter where you're from, no matter how you speak. The arts is something that we can, you know, have this shared um love for. And so through dancing, through movement, through painting and drawing, all of those things, I've been able to use that connectedness in my actual teaching to make sure that my students were academically ready, but then also to make sure that I connected with my students spiritually, socially, and emotionally.
1: What has been the most impactful moment that you have had as an educator thus far?
0: yeah so i think i've shared this multiple times and i'm not even going to stray away from it this time i started my dance company sons of freedom dance institute 13 years ago danielle and uh, when i started i had seven eight-year-old young men those young men were in the third grade they had a love an insatiable desire to dance but there was one particular young man who truly had a passion for dance he Focused on dance in a very intentional way. I remember the very first day he came to my class and he said, Are you my dance teacher? I said, I am. He said, Good, because I want to go to Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Duke Ellington School of the Arts is in Washington, DC, and it's one of the premier high schools. Many people that we know in our country and in, in entertainment world have gone to Duke Ellington who are from DC. So he said he wanted to go go to go to Duke Ellington. That third grader went through middle school and uh, went to Duke Ellington, majored in dance. Last year was my most proudest moment as I sat in the auditorium and watched his senior dance concert. He is now a freshman, well actually now a sophomore at the University of Las Vegas, majoring in dance an amazing dancer, and I am so proud of him and just grateful for that opportunity to watch this young man grow, to watch his authenticity, to watch his boldness, to watch his courage to dance when it wasn't popular. And not just him, but all of the young men who are part of the company. So I think that's the most impactful moment that I have with a student, being able to watch him grow and literally watch
1: him speak a thing and then actually live a thing. Thanks for tuning in this week. Now a word from today's sponsor.
0: What's up everybody? I am Blake Nathan, the CEO and founder of the Educate Me Foundation. I wanna invite all my HBCU students major in education and my current HBCU educators to the 2021 HBCU Teachers Fair held on January 27th. We will have DJ Envy in the building, hosting our celebrity panel on the state of the Black education. You can register today by visiting www.edcomhq.com or visiting www.hbcuteachersfair.com.
1: This is just one of many stories, and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at BlackEducators.Matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. What warms my heart most about that story is the fact that he knew in third grade. Like, we like to pretend that kids don't know or that they haven't, like, no, he knew. And having access to you created a space for him to know and to follow his know. Like, yeah, I know what I want to be. And you're here and you're going to help me be that. Yep, I'm with you and I know where I'm going. And you like, okay, I can create this space. You know, if you're going to go, you're going to go there. Like, he had right. to go there. And he did. He and did. He,
0: did. Yep, he did.
1: Shout out and to him. He did. All Shout right. out to him. Let me ask you this. So we, we had our good moments for the students and the people who knew. So I'm going to ask you a question. What you know. Yeah. What yeah. is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here?
0: So, Danielle... I think that we are at a place where our children's soul is broken. Our children's spirit is fractured and our children's voice is silenced. So let me talk with, let me talk about the brokenness of the soul, which will also kind of lend itself to how we got to where we are. Our children's soul is broken because our children have been so disconnected from their history and their culture. That disconnection is strategic, that disconnection is systemic, and that disconnection has caused a bifurcation or separation between student and his or her authentic self or higher self. Our souls become liberated or our souls become repaired once we are able to reconnect to the place That created us and the place that created us is our history, our culture, our sense of uh, morals and values and the strength of the black family. So I feel one, our children's soul is broken also because our teachers are also disconnected and our teachers do not spend a lot of time focusing on repairing that the soul of our children. Our teachers do not teach history. We know that history is something that now is like a, we don't even, it's not even taught. And if it is taught, it's taught incorrectly to the point where our children only see our history through the lenses of enslavement. And so that's the first piece. Soul is broken, spirit fractured. As a result of us not teaching history and culture, our students, therefore, to dream, to really allow their vision and their passions to grow, that causes a fracturing in their spirit. And then as a result of that, our children's voices are silenced. Our children are not brought into the conversation about education. They're not brought into what they think they need in order for them to be successful. So we're at a place in education where our children are suffering and our children are going to school every single day with book bags of trauma, generational trauma, They're coming from cultural trauma, media trauma, and just the trauma of being black every single day. I don't even know what that's called. That's where we are. Now, we got there, in my opinion, when we instituted things like standardized testing. So standardized testing was done in 1908 by Edward Thorndike, who was a professor at Columbia University. And he and his students began to do this research about the need and, and why standardized testing is. But the thing about it is that standardized testing was created by people who did not include, one, people of color, two, who did not even value the voices of people of color, and then three, most importantly, didn't value the humanity of people of color. Secondly, in 1957, when our schools integrated... Before that, we didn't have access to quality education. We had dilapidated school systems. We were not allowed to go to certain schools. And so our teachers in those communities had to pull together resources and give our kids the best that they could. Those kinds of systematic things that have been foundational in education, standardized testing to keep certain students from access to quality education you know segregation keeping kids from you know access to quality education i think that those things contribute to the state in which we're currently in and then just ultimately the biggest propaganda and plot to make sure that black people remain disconnected from their history and their culture and that plot and that propaganda is something that is infiltrated in every system and as a result our children again have a broken soul, a fractured spirit, and a silenced voice.
1: <sighs> I was about to ask you, are schools designed for children of color, but I think the way that you just broke down the disenfranchisement, the disconnectedness, and the shatteredness of the souls. Oh yeah. the souls of black folk, Lord God. Yeah. Because even that that trauma goes beyond the students. It goes Absolutely. to parents. It goes to teachers. It goes to administrators. If you have had any experience in education in this country, you have some sort of opinion. And even if you had a good experience, you still have seen some things that are just not right. Absolutely. And it does Absolutely. affect you. It does affect Absolutely.
0: you. And we require our students to function at full capacity and to be the best they can be, but we're giving them a
1: system that was broken for them from the beginning. And we define them by that system and, and we then say that, system. that they don't have what it takes to make it through that system. Even though the system was never designed for them to make it through. And when you do make it through, you're special and the people who didn't make it through is because they didn't try hard enough. Not because the cyst, they got caught up on one of the many structural barriers that exist.
0: Exactly. It's, it's almost as if your parent told you to put your hands on the bicycle bar in order for you to balance and not fall. But the thing about it is that there's no bar for you to put your hands on. So how is it that you can even balance the fall when you don't even have anything to brace balance you can't do that right and so the system in a real sense the bars are already off for children of color and we are grappling through muddling through meandering through without the bars and so there are going to be moments that we fall and then when we fall we're judged and said that we didn't have proper balance (sighs)
1: so earlier you mentioned best practices You were talking about, you know, as they were creating these standardized tests, they did not include people of color, black people. But you mentioned best practices specifically around black and brown boys. Yes. Well, we think about the fact that we don't always have this bar, but we're expected to get our balance by grabbing onto this bar. What are some of the best practices that you have seen that work? for supporting black and brown students through this system that was never designed for them in the first place?
0: One of the very first things that I'll say, and it may seem simple, is I have learned that one of the best practices, specifically with black and brown boys, is allowing them the opportunity and the space to express their thoughts and feelings about what they're experiencing. We sometimes, Danielle, do all of these extraordinary and intricate lessons or, or 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 things to educate our children without realizing that sometimes they just need you to listen to them. Sometimes they just need to express what we're feeling. Sometimes they need to let you know that they got yelled at on their way to school. And that might be why they're gonna have some trouble doing the math problem that you're asking them to do. That might be why they're not gonna be able to actually do that do now. And I think it's important for us to consider The listening of our of our students and the expression of our students, of our boys specifically, as a best practice, because that opportunity for them to express and share and most importantly, release that gives them the opportunity then to be filled up with the things that you want to pour into them. And so what's happening is that our kids don't have the opportunity, our boys don't have the opportunity to release and we're still pouring in. Well, we know what happens if you pour into a cup and you know the cup gets to the top, it overflows, right? And so the overflowing happens when our kids then express behaviors that we call anger.
1: And I listen to what I said. me say we call anger or we call mad
0: or we call bad.
1: Well, we or we label as special. We label
0: as That's right. Exactly or we label as having a problem at home. That's all because of the overflowing. And if we just give an opportunity for them to empty themselves, then they will be free for us to pour in whatever it is that we are pouring into them. So that's one best practice that I think is important. Listening to your students, giving them an opportunity to express exactly what they're feeling in that that moment. Another best practice is a Brazilian philosopher Paulo Ferrier, um, has what's called the pedagogy of the oppressed. And in a real sense, the pedagogy of, of the oppressed suggests that our neglect to bring in the voices, the experiences, the culture, uh, the efficacy of our children, our neglect to do that creates a level of oppression. And we are mimicking or perpetuating the system that is oppressive. And so the way in which we release and provide freedom for our children is for us to allow them to come in and be a collaborator in the educational process and journey. So me as an educator, I'm not just creating a lesson plan on my own, but I'm creating a lesson plan in collaboration with my kids. Because I recognize that in order for me to teach them, I got to hear from them. And I have to include in my lesson the things that they're experiencing and that they're facing. And so when we think about that pedagogy, we adopt that pedagogical lens which says we will not contribute any longer to the oppression of our students. And we will not look at this relationship as teacher over student. We will look at this relationship as teacher and student equally collaborating in this journey and step together. That's another best practice that we can incorporate in our classroom. And then the very last thing is what I shared previously, which is um, what I call an engaged, I don't call it, I'm sorry, an engaged pedagogy, which has been coined by Bell Hooks, author and social activist and educator, Bell Hooks. And so about hooks, really, she talks about this engaged pedagogy, which really means that we are in the process of freeing our students. And the way we free our students is incorporating their values, their culture, their history again, right, into the conversation. So I think those are all of the best practices that I think are very helpful and that I think are essential during this time and in order for us to move forward in education and change The paradigm for Black teaching, for Black education, and for Black children.
1: Talk to us about some of the things that you are working on. And where can people connect to follow you and support you?
0: I am working on... My second book entitled, I Am My History, A Celebration of Black History and Culture. It is a book for the little babies, preschool through second grade, but anybody can read it, even an adult. And it really is an opportunity to affirm our children and to teach our children about their rich history and culture. And then secondly, I am working on a Young Black Kings virtual summit that will also happen in August. And this is a way to empower and inspire our black and brown boys as they prepare to go back to school, some virtually, some in person. Although I hope that we will be very cautious and careful as we make those decisions about how our children go back to school. Amen. Um, so we just—I just wanted a way to just empower our boys as they go back to school and just offer them some, you know, things that they can incorporate in their in their new school year. Um, so those are the two projects that I'm working on. If anyone wants to be a part of those projects or Pick up the copy of the book once it releases. You can reach out to me at www.bryankeithharris.com. All of the information about the things that I'm doing as it relates to conferences and workshops, the summit, and also uh, purchasing uh, the book, I Am My History, are all on that website. And on all of the social media handles, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, you can also reach out to me at Brian Keith Harris.
1: As you reflect on all that you've experienced uh, as your time as preacher, educator, and dancer, how have you grown the most since you were that young man learning German? (laughs) I think
0: that I've grown the most in recognizing that who I am, that the gifts that I have been given by God are enough, are worthy, are valuable, and are necessary in order for the people that I've been called to live holy and live happy. And I think that's something that I strive to make sure that my children, but most importantly, that our black and brown boys know that the gifts you have been given by God are divine and perfect. You're worthy, you're enough, you're valuable. And the people that you have been called to need what
1: you have. You are enough and the people that you have been called to need what you have. What you have. The way that you have it. it. Not yeah. you trying to be somebody else. Not you right. do, not you rejecting what you have because you think it. No, we need you, baby. You. All That's you. It. Just yeah. the way you are. And we need educators who pour into kids and other grown-ups People who right. pour into people, because I say educators, but we know in the classroom, teaching happens both ways. That's right. Teaching happens from the kid to the grown up, the grown up to the kid, grown up to grown up, kid to kid. It's just a space where the learning and the recognition of light to light can happen. Are there any black educators that went out of their way to support you that you would like to thank? Yeah,
0: um, there are so many. If I were to go backward, if that's possible to do, I think that Dr. Anthony Hunt, who is one of my doctoral professors, has impacted me a lot regarding the work that religious leaders need to do in the community and in the fight to gain equity for our Black and brown children. If I think about seminary, I think about Dr. Patricia Champ who gave me the freedom to be exactly who I was, dancer, preacher, educator, and to celebrate all of those unique giftings. If I were to think about college, I would think about Nina Elsie Maybutz, who was my dance teacher, who um, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. If I were to think about high school, I would think of a teacher, Mr. B, who was the theater director at my high school, who um, loved the arts and was so passionate about it, and his love and passion for the arts invigorated my own. If I were to think about middle school, I would think about, and I don't even remember this person's name, but I would think about my English teacher who loved reading and writing and Love to pull out the best writer in you as possible. And if I were to think about elementary school, I would go back to that principal, Dr. Ernestine Reed, who was my first example of the educator who functioned in Black excellence.
1: Come on, Black excellence. Well, I have to tell you, you certainly have represented so much excellence today. And this was such a pleasure talking to you and learning about your journey and everything that Likewise. you are doing to like support. Students, but especially pouring into black and brown boys and helping them recognize the magic that they are as they are. Yes. So yes. again, and officially, I want to thank you for coming on the show and say everything that you've done. It was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Thank you. And do you still speak German?
0: Yeah, I can <laughs> say something. What can you
1: say in German? Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.